Well, I think we've all done it. Uh, you're, you're driving down the road, talking away on your phone, of course, back when that was legal. And uh, as you chatter away, at some point you start to realize um, it's quiet on the other end. You haven't heard a response for some time. And so you pause mid-sentence and you give it a second. And uh, inevitably the words come out. Can, can you hear me now? How about now? Uh, and you wonder, how, how long have I been just talking to myself here? Um, and, and then just, just suddenly a, a bit of a crackled voice comes through and gives you confidence again. Oh, there's, there's still somebody there, just enough hope. Are you, are you there now? Can, can you hear me now? And then there's the question, do I just hang up the phone? Do, do I wait? Are they going to come back in in a, a few minutes? Or do I just keep talking as if maybe they, can, maybe they can hear me and I can just finish what I need to say? Um, and, and as comical as that can be, um, I think some of us, if not all of us, to some ex- extent, uh, have felt that way in our prayer life. We're praying along, talking away to God. He's, he's answering our prayers in, in notable ways and things are, things are going great. And all of a sudden you realize... I haven't heard a response for a while. It's been quiet for some time now. Have I just been, have I just been talking to myself? God, are you still there? God, can, can you hear me now? We wonder, do I, do I just keep praying? Is he, is he coming back? Or, or do, I, do I just carry on as if he hears me? Or, or do I just give up? Maybe I'll try calling back later. I, I just want to be real with you. I, I know uh, I know that feeling. See in the, in the movies, there's that, that classic red phone, the, the super secure, direct, hard line to the, to the president that he always picks up. Um, as a pastor, uh, I don't get a red phone as part of my position. I, I don't get some direct line to God that, that others are not privy to. There have been seasons in my life where, where prayer has been rich and full and meaningful and, and passionate. Um, I've seen God answering prayers in just clear, direct ways. But there have also been seasons when it just seems like the, the brass dome has come down over my prayer closet. And the passion is dried up and my faith grows weak. And you wonder, am I just talking to myself? I can remember... A, a span of a, of a few months that the only prayer that I uttered was, was the disciples' cry from, from Luke 11, Lord, teach me to pray. That's it. That's all I've got. I have no, I have no thanksgiving. I have no other requests. God, just, just teach me to pray. I'm lost here. I feel weak. I feel helpless. Just last year, this, the start of, of 2017, um, was just a tough season for me in, in prayer. Uh, I typically spend... Some time in the morning, I try, to, I try to get up early enough that I've got about an hour to read God's word and, and about a half hour or so just to spend in prayer. Um, but, but it was just dry. And so I just kind of canned my whole reading plan that I had mapped out. And, and I just spent what, what turned out to be about six months just, just praying the Psalms, just, just trying to read David's words and let, let those words be my prayer because I didn't have any of my own. It's hard. It's, it's dry. I've, I've been down those, those dusty roads. I understand that experience of crying out to God and nothing, no response. But I also know this. If we look throughout history and throughout God's word, the beginning of every great revival, every great missionary work, every great missionary movement, the ministry of every great pastor, the success of every truly great church begins with a great crying out to God in prayer. Believing this simple promise, Psalm 145, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him and he also hears their cry and saves them. Prayer is essential. If, if this church, if this work begun here is, is going to become anything more than, let's face it, a really lame social club, um, if we want to see lost people saved and, and saved people matured and mature people multiplied to the glory of God, that has to begin with prayer. It starts with prayer. It starts with depending on 
him. And, and if we're not doing that, if we're not starting on that foundation, then, then pack this thing up. I'm going home. Like, let's just, let's just go play video games. That would be as profitable. On the other hand, the Lord is near to all those who call on him. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him and he hears their cry and he saves them. What a beautiful promise. So this morning, this is our, this is our first Sunday together after our, our official launch as an autonomous church. And that's where we want to spend uh, this first Sunday, this first distinguishing mark that we call redemption culture, fervent prayer, prayer that is dependent and expectant. These six things uh, are, are what we are building our church on, um, not because we think they're nifty, um, but because this is what the Bible calls the church to be about. Uh, and so we're going to spend the next couple of months from now till uh, just before Christmas, just kind of digging through these. What are these about? What, is this, what does it mean uh, to have fervent prayer, to have bold preaching, have passionate worship, to be purposeful in disciple-making and courageous evangelism and then strategic church planting? How, how do we fulfill those and, and why? Why do we make these the foundation of, of who we are as a church and what we're going to be about? Well, this morning, prayer. Dependent and expectant, fervent prayer. And I just want to I just want to go for some very practical advice this morning from God's word. Um, how, how do we cut through the static? How do we persevere in prayer through those dry and weary times, through those times of wondering, uh, is, does this have any meaning to it? Is God even listening to me? And for that, I want to turn to, to 2 Chronicles 7. If you don't have a Bible on you, I just invite you to slip up your hand. One of our ushers will get you a Bible. Um, I don't know if you're a news junkie, but I, I am. And Fox News this morning had an article by Andy Stanley, and I was very disappointed to read. Uh, he, he had made a list of five reasons why Christians leave the church or why people leave the church. And reason number one is that we've taught them that the church is founded on the Bible. <laughs> My heart breaks. Now, I can agree with them a little bit. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. Um, but this is where the God of the Bible speaks to us. This is his trustworthy, infallible word of God to us. This is where it starts. And so when I stand up here, I don't pretend to have any wisdom for you. Uh, I, I, I'm no, I have nothing of value for you except God's word. Um, that's my only hope. And we'll talk more about uh, what it means to be preaching expository and applicational next week. Um, but that's what we're about exposing what's in God's word and applying that to our lives. That's a, a simple task. What does God's word say? That's, that's what I want to say. And so I want you to be able to look down and see it. And see here, this is God's word. And, and to see, boy, you know what? He strayed there. He missed that. And I'm happy. I am excited to have people come up to me after the service and say, I don't, I don't know that I agree with the way that you said that. You said it means this. I don't, I don't think that's right. That's, that's a conversation I love to have because it means God's word is important. It means we want to get it right, and I want to get it right, and I'm not, a, I'm not above getting it wrong. Uh, so let's strive together for that, uh, pushing into, into God's word. Looking at, at 2 Chronicles 7, now you have to understand that the context of this passage, uh, Solomon has just finished building the temple for the Lord in Israel. This is a big deal. Um, the Lord had given instructions for the tabernacle to Moses, this tent that was set up and transported along with them. And they settled in Israel and they've been there for a long time now. And David had it in his heart to, to build a temple. And the Lord said, no, your hands are full of blood. Your son is going to build it. So finally, Solomon comes along and Solomon undertakes building the temple. And it takes him 20 years. Um, chapters 2, 3, and 4 record the, the building process. Chapter 5 is this moment, this climactic moment in the history of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant, the place that God has said, my presence will dwell there, is moved into the temple. Chapter 6 is Solomon's prayer as he, as he dedicates this temple. And so much of that prayer has this, this refrain, asking the Lord to hear the prayers of his people. God, if they would turn their face toward your temple and pray, would you hear them? After Solomon's prayer of dedication, chapter 7 starts with fire coming down from heaven. Wouldn't you love to have been there, to see that, to feel the heat of that? Fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord fills the temple. 
Wow. They finished their celebrations. Solomon, exhausted, goes to sleep. And in his sleep, the Lord answers him, answers his prayer of dedication, asking the Lord to hear the prayers of his people. And, and that's where I want us to spend our morning, looking at 2 Chronicles 7, 12. Read 12 through 14. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Just camp out in verse 14 there this morning. What an amazing promise from God. But, it, but if you'll notice, um, this is an if-then statement, right? If my people will do this, then I will hear from heaven. That, that ought to pique our interest. How does this work? God himself is saying, here's how to pray so that I will hear you. Here's how to fix your, your reception problems with God. And the first thing he says by addressing my people who are called by my name this thing to be heard by God, you need, to, you need to believe in God. Believe in God. Now, for those of you who are discerning Bible readers, careful students of Scripture, you know we're on, we're on potentially dangerous ground here. We need to do a little bit of work here. We're in the Old Testament. We're talking about the Old Covenant before the coming of Christ. And so the promises of God made through the Old Testament, they're, they're made to Israel. They're not made to us. And, and we get in a lot of trouble when we, we kind of grab those and just quote them as if they apply directly to us. They, they don't. They were written to Israel in a, in a different time. And so here's a little hermeneutics lesson, a little lesson on how to read the Bible properly. You're reading along through the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, and, and particularly these promises of God, um, you don't just take them directly. We need to do a little bit of interpretation. And so a couple of lenses to look through, a little bit of help as we do this. First, look for God's character. God's character does not change. He is the never-changing God. So his desire to bless, his, his faithfulness to do what he says he'll do, that's, that's absolutely steadfast. As we see those things promised and played out, absolutely, we can just take that to heart. It's the same God then that I'm relying on today. Uh, the second lens is a little less straightforward. It's the lens of Christ and the cross. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, All the promises of God find their yes in Him. And that is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to the glory, or to God for His glory. So all the promises of God throughout the Old Testament, they find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. That's where they climax. That's where they come together. And, and so as recipients of Christ... As those who are in Christ, we are, in a sense, recipients of all of the promises of God from throughout the Old Testament. However, in the coming of Christ, some of the fulfillments of those promises have, have fundamentally changed. The nature of those promises has changed. Uh, we understand now in Christ that the promises that were made to Israel, many times very physical promises, uh, many of them were fulfilled to Israel in physical ways, but they were actually pointing to a, a much greater spiritual reality. It's kind of that classic picture from your science textbook, um, the, the beam of light hitting the prism, or maybe if you're cooler than I am, you remember it as the Led Zeppelin album cover, but we'll pretend like I didn't say that. Um, all of the promises of God flow together as one beam of light to one focal point. That's Jesus. But in Jesus, those, those promises are fulfilled and they come out the other side in living color, in this rainbow array. It's taking the same piece of music. There's, there's continuity to it, but it's been transposed into a higher key. And that takes a little bit of work. It takes a bit of biblical understanding to, to get exactly at how we hold on to these promises. But the payoff is huge. So look for the character of God and then ask how is this promise fulfilled in and through 
Christ? How do we understand this in Jesus on the other side of the cross? And we're going to do that very practically down at the end of this verse. Um, God promises to heal their land. That takes a little transposing. We need to ask, what does that mean for us now on the other side of the cross? But we need to do it right here at the outset as well. For one thing, the context is the temple. Should we care about the temple in Jerusalem? Should we go down to the Wailing Wall and and pray there? The Jews do. Are we waiting for for a new temple to be Built? Should we be fighting alongside the Jews to reclaim that, that historic temple mount? And, and I think the answer is no. No. All of the light of the promises of the temple have been transformed into living color in Christ. AD 70, the Romans destroyed the temple, wiped it out, and it's never been rebuilt. Matthew 12, 6, though, 70 years before that, Jesus says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. John 4, 21, Jesus said to the woman at the well, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, he's talking about Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans had their holy place, that's where they believed the temple ought to be, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem where the temple was will you worship the Father. And he goes on to say in verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It's not about where you worship. It's not about a a holy sight. It's worshiping in spirit and in truth. And, And I think part of that is wrapped up in the fact that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Revelation 21, 22 looks forward into eternity. And John tells us, I saw no temple in the city. And these these poor Jews, what do you mean no temple? Well, how can we worship without a, a temple? And John goes on to say, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Jesus. Jesus is the new temple. He is the the dwelling place of the glory of God. So as we talk. In Second in Chronicles, and, and you look through chapters 3, 4, and 5, and the blessings of God for those who will turn their face toward the temple. We can transpose that a little bit. Understand that through the, the lens of the Messiah. We know that we're no longer looking for a temple. We're not looking for a building where God makes his home, but a living person in Jesus Christ. That's where we turn our face. That's where we put our hope. Similarly, here in verse 14, the Lord is addressing his people who are called by his name. Who's he speaking to? Well, in in Chronicles, he's talking about the Jews. He's talking about Israel. Any Jews here today? Anybody? I'm told I got 164th. I don't know what that earns me, but I don't think it's much. Um, But if there's nobody here that can trace their lineage back to to Levi or Benjamin or Judah or Simeon, then, then... what are we doing? We're not, the, we're not the chosen people. This isn't us. So how do we claim this promise? God says, here's my promise to Israel. Can we claim this? In Christ, we can. In Christ, we claim this through, through Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens Outside of God's people, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Through Philippians 3.3, we are the circumcision. That was, that was short term for Jews. We are the Jews. We are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's the new Israel. That's the new people of God. Not those who are Jews physically, but those who trust in Christ. We're grafted in. And all of that to say, the place we start in wanting to have our prayers answered and in wanting God to hear us is to be part of the people of God, to be part of this group that he's talking about. This is addressed to my people who are called by my name. And so the first step in having your prayers answered is Trusting in Christ for salvation. Turning your face toward Him. On our own before God, 
we are rebels. We are set against him. We're sinners who deserve his wrath and hell for eternity. We have, we have no claim on the goodness of God. There, there is nothing in us that should give us reason to think that, that I can demand an audience before God. We, we ought to be burned up in his presence. God owes us nothing, nothing but wrath. It's only through the cross. It's only to coming to God through Jesus that, that we can expect anything but the penalty for sin that we deserve. But in Christ, in Christ, John 1.12, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God. What an amazing promise. Not, not just the people of God, not just the nation of God, the children of God brought into his family. God becomes our father. And central to this biblical metaphor of God as father is that the father cares for his children. That he listens to them, he, he hears them when they, when they cry out, that he knows what they need before they even ask. So we ought to believe in him, come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Outside of that, we, we get nothing but wrath. We need him. And in Christ, we come then to God as, as Father. So believe in him. And then points two and three are kind of woven together here. Ask from him and seek after him. For key words in this next section of the verse. God says, if, if my people, those who are in Christ, were my children, if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. So humble, pray, seek, and turn. Um, quick side note for the, the nerds among us. If you're sitting beside someone who's a nerd, sell them out. Put your hand, who are the nerds? Uh, or maybe if you are a nerd and you, you yeah, somebody's getting excited when I start talking languages and grammar. Good. So this is for you guys. The rest of you try not to fall asleep and I'll try and, I'll try and buzz this quick so that you get to see um, what I love because I'm a nerd too. Um, if you look closely at this passage, there's just some beautiful Hebrew grammatical structure, some literary work here, and uh, we can only scratch the surface of it. Um, but, but Hebrew loves its parallelisms, right? Um, so you see these two couplets, humble and pray, seek and turn. And the, the first is called synthetic parallelism. He says the same thing twice. He says it once, and then he says it again with just a little more information. See what I did there? Sorry, a little grammar joke. Um, humble themselves and pray. And the second couplet is antithetical parallelism. I'll let your pen catch up on that one. Antithetical parallelism. He says the same thing in a positive way and then again in a negative way. So it's seek my face and turn from your wicked ways. So it's the same action from opposite viewpoints. And then on top of that, you can't really see it in the English, which always frustrates me, but there, there are different forms of the Hebrew verb. Every Hebrew verb has seven different forms that it'll show up in, these different stems. And, and one of the many differences between them is that it can be just stated or stative intensively. And, and in this case, the outer two, humble at the top and turn at the bottom, they're just kind of thrown out there casually. But the middle two are intensified. And so it draws our attention to the middle two words in these two couplets. And so if we're going to translate this really awkwardly, um, you could say, humble themselves and really pray and really seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. So you can hear God calling our attention to those middle two and it all flows together. And the first point is that we ought to ask from him. Humble yourselves and really pray. True prayer comes from a place of dependence, of need, of desperation. I understand there's seasons when it's hard to pray. But what is it when we don't pray? I mean, let's just be honest. How often are we just too busy to pray? We don't pray because we, oh, I just didn't think about it. Or I didn't have the energy to do it. I didn't make time for it. And what are we really saying? What we're showing by our lack of prayer is that we really don't believe it's necessary. We think we can get on without it. I was going to, but I didn't, and I'll be okay. We don't think it's essential. 
If we thought it was essential, we would do it. When's the last time you just forgot to fill your gas tank with gas? It's happened a couple times, maybe, once or twice, but you learned something that didn't go well. We believe that, that if I don't fill my gas tank with gas, something bad is going to happen. My day is not going to go the way that I planned. It's going to be problematic. And so before we run out from ga- of gas, we, we fill up our tank. Because we believe that we need it. So we don't forget it. We don't just skip that part. I was too busy, so I decided to drive my tank to empty on the freeway. What if you went to the doctor tomorrow and you learned that you have a fatal disease? And you're going to surely die that day. There's one cure. You will live if every morning you get up at 5.30 a.m. Yeah, there's a 5.30 a.m. I don't know if you knew that. It's there. Um, and took a pill. And, and, and the, the day that you fail to get up at 5.30 and take that pill, you die. Do you think you'd forget to set your alarm? Do you think you would... Just hit the snooze a few more times? You think you would just kind of sleep through? I don't think so. I don't think so. I I think for the first few months, maybe the rest of your life, you'd be like popping awake at 4 o'clock. Is it 5.30 yet? Did I miss it? Am I, am I, I, I can't miss that. I need that. I'll die without it. It's essential to my life. The problem with our prayer life so often is not that it takes time. It's not that we need more sleep or that we're too busy. It's that we do not believe that it's essential. And God in his grace sustains us regardless of our prayerlessness. And instead of being so grateful for his grace that we didn't even ask for, we start to think that we're superhuman. I can do okay without it. This proves that I don't need prayer. It's not the case. It's not the case. We think we can get through life without God. We think we get fine by fine without Him. And it's sad how backwards we get this. Somehow we've come to think that that prayer, this, this thriving prayer life, that's for the mature. That's for the godly, seasoned Christian. They're the ones that have the true prayer life. And and that's true, but it's not what you think it is. The seasoned, mature believer who spends hours in prayer every day without fail, do you know why they do it? Not because they're strong. Not because they are are so spiritually empowered that that they can do this but because they've learned to see their life through a spiritual lens and they've come to understand they're too weak to do anything else. They are too frail, too helpless to go about their day without first going to the Lord in prayer. We're not going to accomplish anything of value outside of humble, dependent prayer. They know their need for God. We bumble along without prayer like a blind man walking along a cliff thinking, I'm fine. Why is that man with sight walking so slowly? He understands the peril of his situation. We don't pray because we don't believe it's essential. And and the strong in the Lord pray because they understand their weakness. Do you believe that? Do Do you see your desperate need for God? Jesus did. Frequently we read of Jesus getting up early and slipping away to a quiet place to pray. God in flesh wasn't going to miss that, wasn't going to skip that. Don't fool yourself into letting yourself off the hook thinking, well, I don't pray because I'm not strong enough. I'm not mature enough. No, that's, that's not humility. That's arrogance. And it's dangerous because we, we can think it is humility. Humble yourself. Stop thinking that you can please God on your own. Stop thinking you can accomplish something in this life without God. You you can't. Believe God. And and he begs us. In fact, he commands us. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Don't carry these burdens on your own. Now, that is what it sounds. It's this, this warm welcome from God. Don't be anxious, but it's also a command. Stop that. Don't be anxious. Being anxious is sinful. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
Humble yourself and really pray. And, and I think the intensive there drives us to, to true prayer. It, it pushes us beyond just kind of going through the list, checking off the prayer box. Um, maybe we do that a little too often as we pray before the meal and we just kind of rattle off our kind of standard prayer. But really pray. Really lean into God. Really plead with God for real needs in your life, in your heart. Understanding your need for Him. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? In the, the arrogant prayer of the Pharisees who, who stand up on the street corner and they, they boldly declare their prayers to God of these fancy words and, and everyone looks to see how great He is. The Lord despises that prayer. It's not prayer at all. But He delights in those who come with no strength, no fancy words, no soapbox who just come to him in the inner room of their house like a needy child. Daddy, I need you. Daddy, I have no strength. I don't know how to get through this. I'm not strong enough for this. I need you. That's the prayer that God loves. It's the prayer of the humble, the weak, the brokenhearted. I promise you, you're strong enough for that. You're strong enough to come to God and say, I need you, God. Help me. Next time you come to God in prayer, don't, don't proudly offer him your service in prayer. He doesn't need that. That doesn't impress him. Humbly, desperately come to him in need. See if that doesn't transform the way you think about prayer. See if God will not delight to answer those prayers as we come to him dependent and needy. It takes us to the next parallelism. If you want your prayers to be heard, believe in him, ask from him, and then seek after him. He says, I will hear if they really seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Now, the face of God, it's the presence of God. It's the same word used throughout the Old Testament, the pene of God. Now, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere present at all times. And, and, and this trips people up a little bit sometimes. Uh, and they say hell is outside of the presence of God. And it kind of is, in a sense. But in another sense, hell is very much in the presence of God. Hell is in the presence of the wrath of God and the anger of God and the punishment of God. Those in hell would want nothing more than to be outside of the presence of God. But when the Bible speaks of the presence of God or the face of God, it's not, it's not talking about God's omnipresence. It's certainly not talking about the presence of his wrath. It's talking about the presence of God's favor, his joy, his blessing. This is the, the Aaronic blessing, the blessing that God gave to Aaron as the priest to declare over the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord put his presence upon you. And the prayer that God hears is from those who really seek his face, who seek after his favor, his blessing. They desire it. They treasure it. They want that more than anything else. And they do that by turning from their wicked ways. Look at verse 13 uh, in 2 in, uh, Chronicles 7. The Lord introduces this promise with some strange words. When I shut up the heavens and there is no rain, or command the locust to devour the land, or send pestilence, disease on my people, why would God do that? Like, is, is he vindictive and, and mean? Is that where this passage starts? When God says, when I'm, when I'm really being cruel? No, I, I don't know if you know this. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, stick a bookmark in there. That's the answer key to the rest of the Old Testament. As you're going through the prophets and you're thinking, what on earth is he talking about? Chances are he's talking about Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 is God explicitly laying out for Israel, here are the blessings if you obey me and the curses if you disobey. And, and that's the, the world that Israel lives in. As they obey, they, they come into the blessings of God. And as they disobey, he brings their curse as, as discipline on them. And explicitly, uh, in Deuteronomy 28, he mentions 
withholding rain and sending locust and pestilence. Um, this is about them being under God's discipline for their disobedience. But if they will humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from their disobedience, turn from their wicked ways, he will hear them. Psalm 16, 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If I was loving and, and seeking after and finding my joy in sin, God would not have heard my prayer. 1 Peter 3, 7, written to husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Love your wife. She's, she's called to submit to you. You're called to, to lead her as Christ loved the church. If you're doing that poorly, if you're sinning against your wife, your prayers will be hindered. God's saying, I'm not, I'm not listening the same way. Our sin hinders our prayers. And the book of Hebrews promises the Lord disciplines those that he loves, right? And his discipline is different from his blessing. It leads to his blessing. It's there to bring us into his blessing, but it's not pleasant. So if you're living in unrepentant sin, if you have some area of your life that's just going sideways to what God requires of you, it's going to affect your prayers. You might be right about that feeling of God's not listening to me. I'm loving my sin. I'm asking God to provide for me so that I can continue on in my sin. Why isn't he listening? You're not seeking his face. You're not turning from your wicked ways. God in his grace and mercy will not answer your prayers. And in his love for you, he will bring painful discipline to bring you back into obedience into his blessing. James 5.16, therefore, Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Here's the thing. You, you're either seeking joy in God or you're seeking joy in sin. Those, those are the only two options. We all seek after joy. Blaise Pascal, the old mathematician, says that, that we all seek joy. Even the person that commits suicide is seeking his own joy. He sees that as the better option. And we seek that in God or we seek it somewhere else and, and that's sin. If you're seeking joy in sin, God's not going to leave you on that path. Not if you're his child. He will not bless you there. You will not have peace there. You will not have joy there. God will see to it. And this is where faith really rubs, isn't it? This is the crux of the matter. This is where the, where the rubber meets the road. My, my wife shared with me a little snippet from Facebook this week. I, I would die for my kids. I just don't want to feed them supper. Right? And we get that. I love my kids. I just, I just don't want to make dinner again. Um, we, we live that. We, we, we so often think the same way I think about God. God, I would die for you. I believe in you. I give my life for you. I'm just not going to give up this TV show for you. I just won't give up gossip. I just can't forgive that person. I just won't. You fill in the blank. I believe you, God. But then when it comes to the specifics, will you obey? Will you actually put that belief into action? Do you actually trust me when I say forgive others as God in Christ forgave you? Will you do what the Bible says? We actually believe that seeking God is better when that's the opposite of what your heart wants to run after. How often are we put in that place? I either follow the Bible or I follow my heart. That's tough. I have that conversation with my kids on a, at, at least a weekly basis. I know you want this. I know that's what you believe will be good. But God's word says this is good. Who do you believe? Yourself or your God? That's tough. We've been trained to trust our hearts. That's what Disney tells us every single time. Believe your heart. Follow your heart. Follow your dreams. It's a lie. 
We need to seek His face, His favor, His joy. Is He your treasure? That's the prayer that God hears. The prayer that says, take this whole world and give me Jesus. That's what I want. That's what I believe true joy looks like. That finds the the treasure in the field. Remember that story? And then in his joy, he sells all that he has to buy the field with the treasure in it. How on earth does he get rid of everything he owns with joy? Because the treasure, the treasure is so much better. It's so much better. Let me offer hope here as well. This passage isn't calling for perfection. God is not saying that the answers to our prayers are only for the sinless. He's calling for a turning of the heart. Seek after my favor. Turn away. Even James in saying that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, first tells those same people, confess your sin. Because they're not righteous. Because they're not perfect. 1 John 1, 10 into 2, 1. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and obviously the assumption is everyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's, that's my favorite title for Jesus. Jesus Christ the righteous. What hope. I love this. Daniel 9 sums this up so beautifully. Daniel tells us he was reading the book of Jeremiah, which is just cool. Um, the prophet Daniel is reading the same book of Jeremiah that we read today. And he did the math and he figured out that Israel's exile was to last 70 years. And that's, that time was about up. And he confesses to God that that they had rebelled against him, that they had done wicked things in the sight of the Lord, that they deserved their exile. And then verse 18, he says this, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. That's exactly what we're talking about. Listen to me, God, hear my prayer. Open your eyes and see the desolations and the city that is called by your name. Now listen to this. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Our confidence isn't in our righteousness, but in his mercy toward those who will turn from their wicked ways and seek after him, who love him, who trust him. Believing that his favor is better than anything else the world has to offer. Believing better is one day in your courts, O Lord, than a thousand days elsewhere. That he is the foundation of all of it. That he is the the fountain of living water. That that in him are the paths of life. There is joy in his presence and infinite pleasure at his right hand. That this is eternal life to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said, I tell you these things that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. Do you want joy? Of course you do. Seek it in God. Seek the face of God. Stop seeking joy in this world, in sinful things. It's a lie. Seek God through joyful obedience. And when you're seeking Him, your your prayers are going to be shaped by that. And they will be prayers that God hears, that God delights to answer. Believe in him, ask of him, seek after him, and then finally expect from him. This is the then of the if-then statement. If you believe and ask and seek, then God promises, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and heal their land. The word hear there is shema. It's more than just a passive hearing. It's not just our voices echoing in God's spiritual eardrums. It's a hearing that cares. It's a hearing that's moved to action. Exodus 2, Israel was captive in Egypt, suffering under slavery. And verse 23 says that Israel groaned because of their slavery. Verse 24 says God heard their groaning. And the rest of Exodus plays out what that hearing looks like. He heard and he acted. 
And he brought about the greatest rescue plan of the Old Testament. That's God hearing. It's the Exodus. Believe in him. Ask of him. Seek after him. And he will hear you. It says he will forgive their sin and he will heal their land. Now, forgive their sin. We get that. That, that comes to us directly. It would forgive sin in the Old Testament, translated through Christ. It's, it's sin forgiven. Heal their land. We need to transpose that a little bit. What does that mean for us now? To, to Israel, as God's chosen people, particularly coming out of the Exodus, it was the land. That's what they were after. God promised, I will give you this promised land, the, the, the land that I promised to, to Abraham. And, and that was this thing that they looked forward to. Egypt was this place of suffering and, and slavery and the land. The land that would be theirs, the land that would overflow with, with fruit and, and, and be prosperous and safe. Our, our brothers to the, to the south, I'm kind of a half American, um, they get, they're a little too prone to grab this and skip the cross part. And, and we, we want to talk about God, heal our land, right? We're one nation under God, heal our nation. And it's an admirable hope, but that's, that's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about a, a nation anymore, not, not through the prism of Christ. The land throughout the Old Testament was the climactic emblem, the symbol of the fullness of God's blessing. That's what it's about. We aren't looking for a land the way Israel was. And, and actually, even those in Israel who really got it, who really understood, uh, Hebrews 11 tells us they weren't looking for that land either. They knew they had another home. So we understand the land on the other side of Christ is the blessing of God. It's his favor. It's his, it's his joy and comfort and peace. It's, it's shalom. It's the good life. God is saying, I will hear and I will act and I will forgive their sin and I will bring on them the full force of my blessing to pour out on them. And notice the concrete words here. I will hear. I will forgive. This is so rich. And the fact is that we all, by the merits of our position in Christ, have the red phone, the direct hard line to God that he will answer. We can pray with confidence, knowing that he will answer. 1 John 5, 14 this is the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. Jeremiah 33, 3, call on me and I will answer you and tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. These are the promises of God. Do you believe them? Do you pray like they're true? So often our prayer life feels cold and dead and cut off from God, not because he's not listening, but, but it's from our side. It's because we don't believe the promises of God that he will hear. Part of the prayer that God hears is praying with expectation. That's the prayer that honors him, that trusts that he will do what he says he'll do. Listen to the prayer from the, the prophet Micah. Micah 7, 7, as for me, I will look to the Lord and I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do you pray like that? I will wait because he's going to hear me. Or Habakkuk couldn't understand what was going on, all this evil in this world. And God was using this, the wicked people to, to punish his people. And, and, and he just can't grasp the evil in the world. And so he's wrestling with God through chapter 1 and then chapter 2. He says, I will take my stand on the watch post, station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaints. He expected God to answer. So he stands there like a, like a watchman on the tower, straining to see the horizon. God is going to answer me. How often do we pray and then walk away and just forget? Forget what we even prayed about. Pray for specific things. And then watch for God to answer. Expect him to move in response to your prayer. Pray with confident hope. And it comes back to believing in him. 
trusting him as a, as a child, trusting his father, knowing with absolute confidence he will answer. Even though it may not be the answer that I anticipated, it may not be the answer that I hoped for. Even I don't get this answer in this life, he will answer according to his wisdom. So what do you do when we begin to feel like our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling? We start to ask, God, can you, can you hear me now? Continue believing in him. Continue asking from him with desperate humility. Continue seeking after him. It's a good chance to stop and go, am I willfully walking in unrepentant sin? And persevere in prayer, trusting that he will answer. No matter what our eyes see, no matter what our heart feels, praying even with thanksgiving, having confidence in his promises that he will heal and forgive and bless. I want to just take a few minutes. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. But I want to take some time to pray. Just individually, where you are, to ask from God, to seek him. To expect something from him. Maybe you um, have seen God doing amazing things and, and yet for the last while, it's just been nothing. It's been nothing. And, and you've come to believe maybe prayer is something that strong people do. I'm just not strong enough to, prayer, to pray. Or maybe you've come to God with this idea of, of offering your time to God in prayer to impress God. You're going to give to God in prayer. And you just need to come before him in humility. Confess your desperate need for him. God, I, I don't offer you anything. I just need everything from you. Maybe you've been walking in sin in some area of your life. And you need to just confess that to God right now. Turn your heart away from that sin. God, I, I know that I've, I've run after that. I've treasured that. I've looked for joy there. But I believe that joy is in you. I'm, I'm turning from that sin. And I, I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. Can you turn your heart toward God? Ask him to do it. Seek joy and satisfaction in Christ. Or maybe you've been praying and, and wondering, God, can you, can you hear me now? Starting to question his faithfulness, wondering, will he answer? Does he answer? Maybe you've been hurt and, and disappointed by things in your life. This didn't go the way I wanted it to. God, this isn't the life that I had planned out. It's easy to doubt. God, where's your blessing? Where's your goodness? Do you really answer prayer? And you, and you just need to reestablish your feet on the rock of God's faithfulness in spite of what your eyes see. His goodness to know that he hears the prayers of his children, that, that he is good and he does good, and just rest in that. So let's just take a few minutes and invite you just to spend some time before the Lord. You do the business with God that you need to do. Let's come to him desperate and asking and seeking after him.